welcome to The Quantum Divide. This is the podcast that talks about the literal divide between classical IT and quantum technology, and the fact that these two domains need to become closer together. Quantum networking actually is more futuristic than perhaps the computing element of it, but we're going to try and focus on that domain. But we're bound to experience many different tangents, both in podcast topics and conversation as we go on. Enjoy. All right, welcome back. Another episode in short succession. This time I'm joined by Harold Olivier, right? Bonjour, Harold, de bienvenue sur le podcast Quantum David. Uh, thanks for joining us. Bonjour. Thanks for hosting. Yeah, superb. Yeah. Yeah. You're, uh, you're a first attendee from France. So it's, it's great to, to have you on board and we'll, we'll have a good discussion about what you do and what's happening in France, I think is up. So you work for INRIA. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. Um, let's start with the normal approach that I take in these podcasts. Give us a bit of a view on your path into quantum, what it is you do and what it is you're doing in Rio. So what I'm doing is mostly researching, um, verification of quantum computation. That means when you are in a setting where you don't have a quantum computer in house and you want to delegate the computation. But you want this computation to still be secure in the sense that you want to have privacy on the data and the algorithm that uh, you are running. And uh, you also want to have a proof of integrity of the computation being performed. So that's most of my activity. Although I have other interests, uh, mostly based on quantum error correction, quantum error mitigation. And the reason is that the team that uh, I'm working in is, is its focus is really working and researching theoretical problems, fundamental problems, but guided and inspired by practical problems, e experimental questions, and trying to make that real life applications. So we go back and forth between theory and experiments. So of course. If you do this, you are forced to look at error correction and, and error mitigation. So that's, yeah, that's the second focus. I would say. Great. Is your background in mathematics or is it physics uh, or the blend of multiple topics? You know? Yeah, it, it's mostly a blend. Yeah. I had uh, a lot of math, but, but also I did, I started doing theoretical physics and I entered into quantum really through the theory of decoherence. So really like I was interested at the time in studying the transition between quantum world into the classical world and what that means. And, and in fact, I went to this topic or, or I entered quantum information because uh, the work that I did was trying to understand this transition mostly from an information theoretical point of view. So really trying to understand how information leaking into the environment leads to decoherence. And more than this is like, how does objective world emerge from the quantum one? And again, trying to characterize this in terms of information. And so, yeah, it's very natural to then input a lot of quantum information, theoretical quantities into that. And then after that, yeah, you start being interested in error correction and then that goes to more like application. Great. And, and I know we're going to deep dive on some of that in a moment, but first of all, I can just take you back to INRIA. 
So I understand you, are you the lead for the quantum activities of the Emirates, a research organization? It seems that Iria focuses on many different industry verticals. Is, is there a relationship with the French government now or the French national uh, quantum strategy? Okay, so INRIA is uh, one of the various research institute, public research institute in France. Uh, the specificity uh, of this institute compared to what usually people know more uh, abroad is CNRS. CNRS has a very wide and broad interest in science. They, they can go from archaeology to, uh, to literature, to history, to also like computer science, math, everything. INRIA is focused only on computer science. So within this focus, INRIA has nine different centers in, in France and many more centers that are in partnership with universities. And there in these, in these centers, you have like smaller teams. It's usually between three and five, maybe up to eight people that work on a topic. And it's, it's yeah, each team needs to have a clear topic, clear focus for the next decade. Uh, and yeah, we work then on various topics. Within INRIA, so you have about uh, 1,500 researchers. Uh, within INRIA, uh, there are several teams uh, doing uh, uh, quantum information science. Uh, right now, it's about 80 researchers. And on, on these topics, we look very much into, I would say, the core uh, of the quantum ecosystem. So we think about, we have teams doing pure quantum information science, some doing languages, compilation, we have error correction, but we also have partnerships and that's the, the strengths of the model. We have partnerships with uh, universities that created teams that have both experimental physicists and computer scientists. Uh, so one of the team is at the origin of the cat qubit uh, model for quantum computing uh, that has gained a lot of interest in the, in the recent years. And uh, so it's very interesting because it's within a computer science institute, but you still have like dilution fridges in the lab. So that's very interesting in there. So that, yeah, our focus a lot onto what can we do with quantum computers? How do we build these quantum computers? How do we make them robust and trusted? So that's, that, that's I would say, the, the main focus of Inari. Very nice. Thank you. Yeah. How does that link into the French the quantum strategy? Is there a national strategy and a good ecosystem of startups and things that you collaborate with or heavily public sector? Yeah. So I would say, so the topic, the topic of quantum information at Inoria started in 2001. Uh, actually I was, uh, I was the first one doing quantum information there and it grew uh, little by little and yeah, as a traditional or uh, yeah, recognize expertise in, in having collaborative projects with, with startups as, and with companies. Since the very beginning, uh, there has always been uh, a lot of contact with industries in, in quantum, uh, of course, and, uh, and others, but, but, but not necessarily the quantum topic. Uh, but uh, yeah, there has always been a lot of, of interaction. Uh, also because these teams are often Within universities, there are natural links, and I would say it's the it's a very strong characteristics of the of the field of quantum information science is that theory people usually talk a lot more with experimentalists than in other fields, and so there has always been a lot of interaction with, with the other academic team in the ecosystem. 
But definitely with the launch of the national quantum strategy, like there has been a, a lot more uh, effort done in this, in this respect coming from the state and the government. And INRIA is one of the three main research organizations in France leading and orienting the national strategy with CNRS and CR. And uh, yeah, we actually, before joining the podcast, I was in a meeting with them and we were discussing like how to a lot of synergy within the, the different projects that are funded at INRIA, but within the national strategy, but also beyond. We are, we are all scientists working in this way of orienting things. And we fully appreciate the effort that has been, and, and the trust that, that is put on us by the government saying, okay, develop something that works. That's a, a big challenge. But at the same time, we know that by construction, these kind of national strategies have a very short uh, horizon, even though for them it's a huge effort going to looking at what's going to happen in the next 10 years. But in, 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 in terms of research, it's still like short, medium term. And we need to plan what goes ahead of this and then what goes further than this. And, and our discussion is, okay, we want to take care of this opportunity to, yeah, go and, and be on target with the challenges that are assigned to us by, the, by, by this strategy, but at the same time, construct something that goes beyond this. And that's, yeah, a lot of our discussions with our colleagues. And of course, there is how do we create something that's really like very strong academic ecosystem, but as well, like how do we partner with companies and startups? There are several startups in France that have been uh, quite successful at raising funds in uh, building quantum computers. Uh, we start having startups also uh, interested in, in uh, building quantum memories. Uh, and and we, we, we go then uh, more towards networking questions. There are people doing solutions for, for right now, like distributed classical computing, but secured with, the, with quantum links. So yeah, it's growing in several directions and it's, uh, it's very active. So yeah, very encouraging, but we are always interested in also opening this ecosystem to welcome people also from abroad, because we think that it's necessary. France is not big enough as a country to produce everything that's needed. So we need to be in contact with our European partners, but also more like wider your international partners on, on that topic. Yeah, exactly. It's definitely a global, global effort at the moment. Although there's still the whole local political thing to play, but I think the scientists try and do their best to ignore that, right? And uh, focus on the science, focus on the technology. But I'm not familiar with some of the, the startups and companies in, in France. Do you want to list a couple just to the list? Yeah, I hope I don't forget anyone. <laughs> in, in quantum quantum computing, there is one com company, Pascal, which has been uh, quite successful in developing a platform for neutral atoms. That's one. There is one that's actually very much linked within RIA because of this team developing cap qubits, which is called Alice and Bob. So that's the superconducting uh, platform for computing, but really based on these cap qubits. And they aim directly at going to fault tolerance. So that's, that's interesting because it's a slightly different roadmap. And the way they develop things is, of course, different than the others because they are not so much interested in this. 
We have Candela, which is a very interesting company working on photonic quantum computing platforms. There are younger ones, C12, which is working on carbon nanotubes for doing the, the shielding, I would say, of electron spins for quantum computing. That, that's, I think, pretty much what we have more, most advanced in the computing space. We have WeLink, which is a startup that has started uh, working on quantum memories. And very cloud, which is this this company uh, securing uh, classical computations with quantum before being in a position to secure uh, quantum computations as well. So, so uh, I think that's the ones that I'm thinking about in terms of really hardware computing or networking hardware. But we have other companies doing uh, cryostat and electronics. But that's a little bit too far from me <laughs> to be really listing them. Because, because yeah, we are still working at a quite theoretical level. So everything that goes around, which is extremely important, is, is slightly out, out of my scope, I would say. And uh, yeah. Totally understand, yeah. No, thanks. Oh, that's interesting that even though you mentioned most of those are hardware-orientated, I think there's a software platform, there's the to create fault tolerant system. A lot of that is software-orientated as well. Um, yeah, that's true. There are a few startups doing software and now I'm missing the names, of course, but yeah, it's, it's also fairly active. I would say by construction, it's they these startups need less capital and it's easier to develop these kind of, of solutions. It's a little bit less in the focus maybe of, of, of the national strategy, although it's very important in the long run because that's the way you actually reach the end user and really know who is needing what and what quantum computers are useful for. So that's very important. And they are very necessary also like for us as a research institute, because um, we are sometimes contacted by, by large companies who want to have or understand quantum and, and it's hard for them to to, to find someone who is going to help them really like progress in understanding what's at, at stake for their organization. And lot, most of the time they come to us and, and they ask for help and we try our best, but at the same time, it's very hard because as a research organization, we do research. And so everything that we do uh, needs to be published at one point, or the, the, the aim is to publish something. So you need to do science at the level that's really like state of the art and really pushing the boundaries. And uh, sometimes there is a misfit between, between what we should do and what the companies can swallow and, and, and understand. Their companies doing software are very important because they are good intermediate level, like to help prototyping some stuff and help these larger companies grow in expertise. And then it's much easier to do like very advanced projects with them because they already know the basics and they know what they want or where they want to, to go. And it's much, much easier as far as to interact. Although we try to do our best with addressing these issues, unfortunately, we have a limited bandwidth in some sense. We need to deliver the research that we promised to the funding agencies and the various contracts we are in. So... We do our best in the free time or loud times in there, but, but when we do it, it's very interesting because it's, it's really opening different perspectives and, and making that more connected to sometimes like 
real use cases. Sometimes it's also achieving very unexpected results. Like for instance, helping a company improve its uh, classical algorithmics. Sometimes they come with a problem and you find a solution that doesn't need quantum. And that happened to me. And I think it's very interesting because I think this is an effort that everyone needs to be perf starting performing right now because of the end of the Moore's law, uh, we need to go back to algorithmics and, and try to fine tune everything. And that's, that's a very hard challenge, but that goes way beyond quantum. But if quantum can be one of the reasons why you want to open the box and look at the things like really in detail, you should do it. And if you find a good classical solution, it's all the best. Yeah, it's a, a surprise, but a nice surprise, I guess. Um, listen, I feel like we could talk about the, the business and ecosystem to the whole core, but I know we came to, with three main topics, right? We wanted to talk about the trends in quantum computing, HPC and, and data centers and that kind of stuff. We wanted to talk about privacy, security, and trust in quantum computing and where that was necessary. And then of course, quantum networking, our favorite topic at the end. So let's dive into that, shall we? Let's start with the first one. We had a conversation about quantum computing, on-premise, you know, consumption of cloud deployments, some companies looking for in-house systems, and then and also the, the challenges that brings for a data center company. Yeah, how would you like to start on that topic? I know that's a, an interesting well, one for, for you. Yeah, for me, it's really understanding, okay, there are a lot of challenges in developing quantum technologies. Uh, there is, of course, the science of it. Uh, but it's not only this. At one point, we will be developing this and people are going to sell stuff to others, to companies. And to sell stuff, I mean, I have been a venture capitalist in a past life. So I know that if you have a very good product, that's fine, but you need to meet the market and you need to really answer. Or, yeah, you need to answer a need of a user and you need to insert yourself in the way he processes things and in the way he deals with this service or this hardware that you're providing. And that's, that's, that's a more complex, uh, or it, it, it's a wider concern that you need to have. And what I would say is that right now in quantum computing, we have always been referring to the early days of, of, of classical computing. And that's partly true, but it's also sometimes a little bit misleading. Of course, our machines are not efficient, not very powerful, and they are super big. And yes, there is a long way to go and, and we still need to work and okay, sure. But at the same time, there is something that has changed between the time of ENIAC and now is that now it's just for most companies, not an option to have in-house computing like super very heavy computers and things in-house because we are now so much accustomed to sending data around and moving it here and there and then okay let's hire computing power for a big demand at one point and then we release that this is common practice in large organizations and if we arrive with a very nice and good computer a quantum computer now will be a a pain for these people because they need to reverse uh, what they have been doing, which is like pushing the hardware outside of the, 
of their buildings and into specialized data centers. And we will, if we are selling them a product that needs for them to reverse this trend, it's just like almost impossible. So I think we need to take that into account. Uh, and people providing services at, as data centers need to take that into account because they need to, you know, at one point, be in a position of hosting quantum computers. And we see this in in some of the projects that uh, we are uh, uh, that we are developing and deploying in in in, in France for the, the the national strategy, which is that we are trying to host in one of the the public uh, data centers some early quantum machines, and it's complicated. Yeah, it's complicated because the requirements of these machines are very different from from the classical ones, especially like the cooling system. With helium is a pain, and data centers they don't want this, so they they actually need to rebuild rooms for us to put the, the machines. So it's like suddenly you are like very much onto brick and mortar questions, but you need to solve this. So that's one one problem: the cooling. There is also the vibration. Uh, in fact, data centers are uh, vibrate a lot, and quantum computers don't like that. So you need to take care of this. And again, it's a problem of uh, hiring uh, construction companies, redesigning your building and things like this. So yeah, it's a pain and it's very costly. So I think it's good that we do it like uh, with public money to see exactly what it, what it is, what it takes, understand the problems, and then transfer that to more like to the private sector at one point and say, okay, here is what we did. This works, this doesn't work. And, and we can try to help you in uh, addressing these issues. Yeah, so that's that's what I would say regarding data centers. I think it's uh, we need to take into account the fact that people don't want machines in premise. We need to adapt data centers to host quantum machines. And then yeah, of course, then comes the the question of what security for this. That's a different matter for sure. Yeah. So at the moment, when a quantum computer is installed somewhere, do these types of physical aspects need to be considered and implemented every time? Um, maybe it depends on the modality, right? So if you need a dilution fridge, then of course you have the chemicals required with that. But I do hear that the, these days, the dilution fridge technology is pretty more off the shelf type, type products. Is that true or, or not? Well, Right now, what we, what we see is that, okay, I, I would say that we are conducting experiments. So if we do something, we take the most demanding platform and we do something that fits this platform and then we'll host in the same space the other machines. Of course, there are technologies that are less demanding than, the, than maybe the, the ones you are requiring, dilution fridges. But... Still, it, it's something that needs to be, right now, it's still, it's, apparently it still needs to be built pretty much on purpose for this kind of environment. But it's also, it's also a question, like very practical question of these machines are experimental machines still. So we say, we, we know that we will want to open the box from times to times. So we want to have access to these machines. We want to be able to work around the machines. We want to be able to have enough space to, in case we want to upgrade some components and things like this. So, so uh, yeah, so 
I'm not sure we can really completely draw uh, conclusions from what we have we are seeing right now because we are in an experimental phase. And but in a few years from now, we'll have the the probably some much better view or a clear view on what is needed, what is not needed. <laughs> but we did it anyways by abundance of of precaution. But yeah, so yeah, I think it's clear. There are still like open questions. We just want to make sure that we can push these experiments as far as we as we can. We don't want to be blocked at one point by something that we didn't think about. So we are a bit too cautious, probably. But yeah, I think it's fine in this stage. Right, and that leads me to think that there's a link between this topic and the second topic about privacy and security, because people that want to use quantum computing resources and don't have the ability to either build a new building or take on some new chemical processes or hire some physicists to look after the computer, they're going to need to think about some form of remote execution of algorithms or, or functions inside their code. And we know there's already many ways to do this through private quantum computing companies, through the public clouds. Yeah, this is a, this kind of part of the industry has grown a lot quicker than I think the actual quantum technology itself in the back end because of the fact that the cloud networks are everywhere, the, the cloud data centers are everywhere. It's, it's a matter of pushing out new functions and they get distributed around the globe. So that's great. But then, then we enter the topic of what, a, what if you're executing something that has some intellectual property? What if you're testing something that is you want to keep secret or you don't want anybody to know the algorithms you're running and testing to, to maybe solve a particular problem. That leads us on to the next topic, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's a trend that, that is actually coming from outside quantum computing, uh, really with the privacy preserving laws, especially in Europe with uh, GDPR, uh, everybody now knows that there is a risk uh, in mishandling confidential private data. Uh, people are now also very much aware of, of intellectual property rights and, and questions that you have when you actually execute things uh, remotely. And right now, even in the classical crypto field, there is a lot of evolution. The mentalities are changing and, and people are now much more aware of the issues and the potential solutions. And in the classical space, there are a lot of solutions, but it's still very early, I would say. There are plenty of solutions and people are still exploring. For instance, not so long ago, we were discussing with the, the French banking regulator and they were exploring like very basic questions like, okay, we want to conduct stress tests on the banking system or maybe the insurance, insurance companies. The way they conduct stress tests is that they need to have very fine grain information about all the contracts and all the, the commitments the banks or the insurance companies have with respect to the various parties they are doing business with. The problem, like if you take like, for instance, an insurance company, the, the commitments that you have is towards actual physical people, okay? And to understand how this contract is going to behave, you have to transfer a lot of private information about the health of the person, about the, whatever, the age and location, wealth. So it's a nightmare, even for regulators, okay? 
that's really a, a, a difficult topic for them. And they are exploring classical solutions for this. The way we do is actually hire various startups and make them work on these kind of issues. And so we contacted them and saying, have you considered quantum computations? Oh yeah, that's another challenge. We are interested in this, but it's not for now. And we all agree that they are not going to conduct this kind of test with quantum, uh, quantum computers anytime soon. But then we, we asked them like, but are you going to have your own quantum computer? Oh no, of course not. We are a regulator. We will just do that on the cloud and say, but then you just have the same problem as you have in the classical space. And then they just realized that if you think about a lot of quantum applications, you'll be faced with the same questions that you have right now in, in the classical computing space. And so we need as scientists, we need to develop these kind of, of solutions or protocols to make sure that we can guarantee the same kind of, of promises to end users. And I think for me, it's really like a very strong requirement for developing a healthy quantum ecosystem. If we don't have this, then, and I'm coming back to what I was saying before, if we don't have this, we'll have superb machines. They are going to be great, but nobody or a very small fraction of what we have in mind as a market will really be able to do the efforts to be using it because you need to have a new building and you are just renting your space or maybe you cannot build something inside to host a quantum computer. You can have like plenty of reasons like this. So I think it's, it's, it's necessary. If we want to unlock the full potential, we need to make this remote uh, quantum computation available. If we do remote quantum computation, because quantum computation, at least uh, for the first the first wave of, of, of things that we will do, be doing, it's you are going to, to compute with a quantum computer the, the most complicated or the most sensitive data that you have. Uh, and so by construction, those will be requiring a lot more protection than a, a regular computation. So we need to address that, that question. Yeah, that's for me. This is... Yeah. Yeah. I need some help, I think. So my... my... Just in understanding part of that, I understand the privacy and the need to execute in a secure way. Um, but my understanding of quantum algorithms mostly comes from Grover's search and Shaw's algorithm and so on, which are executing a particular um, set of mathematical tasks to find an answer to something. None of that really takes. Of course, if you're factoring a number and it's a, a key, which is for something important, then that's, that's those numbers that you end up with are quite important uh, and maybe seen as something you need to keep secure. But what about, you mentioned the insurance company, you mentioned personal information, even more so if it's company private information. Can you give me an example of how that type of information is used in quantum algorithms or, or um, programs which are executed on quantum systems? Maybe we're not there yet, but... Um, I, well, I, I mean, haven't seen all the people that are doing uh, quantum machine learning. They are learning on something, and so this something might be whatever you want. But but they, you cannot rule out the fact that these data are, are sensitive. That's one possibility. Uh, the second thing is maybe it's the algorithm that is sensitive itself. Okay, so you have found a, a nice way to do something, and you don't want your competitor to be using it. And and my most beloved example is. 
uh, always the same. And then, um, I'm sorry for naming companies, but maybe it's, it's just uh, uh, making things clear for, for people listening to the, to the, to the audio. But if I am uh, uh, Criteo, which is like a, an ad placement company, and that I have found a quantum algorithm to optimize this ad placement, and I'm running this against Google, okay? Because Google is my competitor, or maybe Google is running the platform where I'm trying to find the best way to place ad. So I have a competing interest in this uh, ad market uh, with Google. But will I really delegate my quantum computation to to Google cloud quantum cloud services? I, I don't know, um, but definitely, even though the, the the data is not sensitive, I don't want to give them the, my algorithm. Okay, and and the way could be reversed if Critio had uh, developed uh, quantum computers, and maybe Google doesn't want to use that part. Okay, so so I think that's that's the issue. The algorithm itself can be very sensitive, and right now, when you access when you access a, a quantum computer, you just send your instructions in plane to the quantum computer. So if you are sitting on the other side of the quantum computer and just looking at what instructions are, are executed, you can just find out the whole computation that is being executed. And we know this, we experience this uh, uh, because we use, of course, it's in an agreed way uh, with the various uh, computing uh, providers. So as academics, we often have access to their machines, but we agree this to be open. And we know that they look at it because from time to time, get a call or an email and say, oh, you are running something and we quite don't understand what you are trying to do. So it looks interesting or something. So it's a fact that you can really look at what people are executing on quantum machine. And I think it's good. I like it the way they do it. I'm not complaining about this. Okay, I need to be clear on this. I think it's good because we need and we want interactions with the, the hardware vendors and to, to help us achieve what we want to do on their platform, but at the same time, trying to help them develop uh, better and better uh, tools. But so that's a well-agreed uh, situation. But at the same time, if you are in a different uh, situation where you want you have your confidentiality, well, you need to rely on the fact that the people on the other side are, are uh, okay and uh, are following their obligations. And that's most of the time, that's what you don't want to do when you think about cryptography. Yeah, of course. So there are pros and cons of the, of the basically feature. I mean, in order to execute something on a remote quantum computer, you need to either d describe the entire processing gate form, or you need to describe all of the mathematical operations that you need to make on a qubit space. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What options are there to obfuscate those instructions? Is there such a thing? Yeah. That's just, now we are getting really like onto what, what interests me as a researcher is really like this, this ability that we have to hide the computation and the data from, from the computer or, or from the, the server that is executing it. And, and if I want to put it very simply in simple terms, basically the way it works there are several ways to do it, but one way of doing it, which is easy to understand, is to say that if we want to conduct a quantum operation, 
or if I want to instruct a, a, a server to do a quantum operation on a qubit that I send to the quantum computer, okay? I need, in this case, to agree with the server on a common reference frame, okay? So it's basically an orientation of the axis, okay? So if, if I want to even think about quantum cryptography, which is even maybe simpler, if you execute the BB84 protocol, you need to send qubits polarized vertically, horizontally, or on a diagonal basis, okay? So if I do this and I send as one of the party, I send my qubit and I claim that this qubit is polarized vertically, I need to agree that my vertical is the same vertical as, <laughs> as the one on the receiving party. And everybody knows that it's a highly non-trivial fact because if you put it, especially if you put your qubit in a fiber, it's going to rotate, okay? So you need first to actually um, uh, calibrate your orientation of axis between one party and the other. If we have some quantum data and we send it to a server to process it, we will need to share a common reference frame, okay? Now, one way of hiding the computation, one way of hiding the data is quite simple. What I'm going to do is that I'm going to choose one reference frame for myself, which will be secret, okay? And then I'm going to actually synchronize a relative reference frame with the server relative to my own secret reference frame, okay? So what's going to happen is that I'm going to send instruction to the server in the relative reference frame. It's going to correspond to the operation that I want to perform on my side, on my secret uh, reference frame. But the server is just going to see very random instructions because actually what I'm going to do is that I'm going to change this relative reference frame qubit by qubit, okay? So I'm sending I'm agreeing with the server for an, a reference frame, but I'm keeping constantly changing it. And he doesn't know how I'm changing it, okay? And that's the way I'm hiding everything, all the computation, all the, uh, the instructions, and also the data. So it's very simple in terms of physics. It's much, uh, much more demanding if you really want to build it as a hardware, but the principle is simple. And then from there, you can actually do a lot of proofs and very interesting proof because it will give you security in an information theoretical sense, which means like really the best that you can hope for. So that's one way of doing it. There are other ways of doing it. People are thinking about trying to build things that would be similar to enclaves in uh, classical processors. Maybe we would call it quantum enclaves. Okay. So to try to avoid sending qubits from the client to the server. There are people that uh, say, okay, let's rely on post-quantum security, uh, cryptography, sorry, and, and uh, build this concept of enclave, but on chip uh, through the help of classical security cryptography. So that's basically like the three main approaches. And each comes with advantages and disadvantages, of course. <laughs> uh, there is no silver bullet, unfortunately. As is always the case, yeah. I, I, I love the fact... Um that you're describing, I assume it's like changing the basis state pretty much or the basis measurement for every single qubit which is sent across the, uh, the network. Now, can that also be done with sending 
is there any way to obfuscate in that way when you're sending the instructions and classical information? I guess that probably is um, no, right because you, you're right. I understand. I think the way I understood it was you describing sending the qubits across the network to then be yeah. to be received and then put onto the computing processor and then perform the processing and then return the results and then you de-encode based on your mm -hmm. basis state measurements on a per qubit basis. Yeah. But when it comes to executing quantum, I mean, there's no way of doing that currently with current quantum computers, remote quantum mm -hmm. computing, because we're just not there with, with networking yet. So uh, currently, anything that you execute remotely has to be sent classically. Is there a similar approach to obfuscating what you want to execute if you're sending it classically i would just i would assume not because you have to what? send the yeah sorry go ahead okay, okay so let's go back to, to your first assumption that says uh, okay yeah uh, in, in in quantum networking we are not there yet yes that's true but at the same time we are we're working on it and uh, so there there is a, a very large uh, european funded project that is really tackling this question. The idea is, is constructing like a long range backbone across Europe and the metro, metropolitan uh, networks uh, connected uh, through a hub. And within this, this uh, smaller networks, we, we are, uh, I mean, very intensely uh, discussing with experimentalists to try to co-design a protocol that would be suitable for very early networks. Okay, so like it's more like proof of concept, but the idea is to have all the ingredients of a full-fledged protocol working and scalable protocol to, to be working on experimental nodes. Okay, so it's in the works. Okay, it's not going to be like uh, millions of qubits sent around, but, uh, but it's really like putting everything in place within the protocol so that if you give me just more qubit on longer coherence time, then I can perform just the same protocol for a longer time, which means like bigger computation. That's, that's where we are right now in, in building the networks. Now, coming back to really like, can you do something classically? Uh, well, yes and no. There's the very good advantage in terms of our overhead of the first solution, which is like sending qubits back and forth is like, yeah, of course you need this ability to send qubits back and forth, but at the same time on the server, there is basically no space overhead, okay? Maybe you are going to repeat your computation a few times or a few times or several times to get the, 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 the result that you can view it as a sort of necessary error mitigation in this, okay? You can do this, but it, security will not require you more qubits on the server side, okay? That's one good point, because if you have like limited uh, machines, you don't want to actually uh, dedicate most of your computing power to take care of security, because if you do this most of the time, then what's, what you are left with is a computation that you can do on a piece of paper just by yourself. Okay. So if you have three qubits, they are very well protected, but you can't do anything with two, three qubits. So th that's one good advantage for the solution of sending qubits back and forth. If you have more powerful machines, then what you can do is actually have classical crypto come into help. And basically what you are going to do is having an encryption of your preparation 
of states being sent classically to the quantum computer. And because the quantum computer cannot break this encryption, what you are really performing in terms of actually quantum operations will still remain uh, uh, understandable from the point of view of the server, okay? But of course, when I'm saying this, is like you still see what the server is, uh, is doing, right? I mean, you, you can check and tra track back all the instructions that you send. They are encrypted. You don't know what it is for, but you can still track them, which means that if this qubit is going to be secure, okay, if the aim of that thought is to produce the same qubit that uh, you were sending across the network, it needs to be operation enough and and, and, and complex enough uh, uh, quantum operation so that you cannot simulate it classically. So now comes into play the, okay, where is the quantum advantage uh, in the story? Uh, uh, in the sense like, when do you estimate that you have a quantum operation that is complex enough so that the classical computer cannot break it or cannot simulate it? And usually what you end up with is a, an overhead in, in terms of, of space in this time that say at, at the very minimum will be like 100 times, okay? So for having one, one protected qubit, you need to have like 100 physical qubits or yeah, 100 qubits unprotected, okay? But yeah, these needs to be qubits that are very good quality, okay? Because if you can, if you start adding noise to this, uh, well, then it's going to be a bit complicated. So uh, it's actually hundred fault tolerantly protected qubits give you one fault tolerant and secure qubit, okay? So uh, it's quite an overhead. And so right now, I think we need to push in both directions and try to simplify the protocols as much as we can. Maybe instead of having 100 qubits uh, overhead, we can have like, yeah, sure, 100 qubits per qubit produced, but if you produce them serially, maybe you can recycle this overhead and, and yeah. So the, these, these are the kind of questions and the, that are very important to address, to try to simplify these protocols and bring them to a regime where they can actually be implemented. Right now, these, these classical crypto protocols are, are uh, most of them are like, completely out of, of reach, but yeah, doesn't mean that we shouldn't do some effort to try to simplify that as much as we can. It's fascinating you're talking about the, the need for additional qubits in that scenario to secure the qubit, but then you also need additional qubits to create a fault tolerant physical qubit, so, or logical qubit, sorry. So yeah, I mean, you, you it just grows, doesn't it? It grows and grows and it's going to make it, uh, you know, as long as we're in the NISC era, it's going to be very difficult to perform this type of operation, unless you're doing it on the fly, sending the state of the qubit across the network. So that, yeah, that leads us onto the network. So what, um, we could go in a, a lot of different areas here. What, what research are you doing when it comes to, to networks or which organizations are you working with? What's, what's your main focus when it comes to, to networking? You meant, you mentioned the European, I don't know if that was the Euro QCI that you mentioned or something different? Actually, I, I mentioned most, uh, I mean, the European project that we are part of is the Quantum Internet Alliance. And it's, it's yeah, I think most of the people doing uh, quantum networks are part of this, of this project. It's really huge. I think uh, there are more than uh, 40 partners, companies and, and academics. And 
the idea there, I mean, what we try to do is, is represent, let's say, the end user, okay? So we are the computer scientists, the theorists, and we try to say, okay, here is a protocol. What can you implement from this? Uh, what kind of physical parameters can you give us? Then we'll try to go back and simulate that, understand what will be the performance of the protocol. Basically, it's, it, it, these kind of protocols are, I mean, it, it's very interesting because when you are looking at the application of quantum computation, the model is the following. You have a client, you have a server. The client is honest, so he, he's doing everything like honestly, perfectly following the protocol and things like this. And then you have the server, and the, the server can be arbitrarily malicious. Okay. And basically the server starts, or the malicious party starts, really at the door of the lab of the client. Okay. So as soon as something leaves the lab of the client, we are thinking that it's maliciously controlled. Okay. So even if you have some noise, the genuine noise that happens, we think, okay, that might be malicious. Okay. So it, what happens is that if you manage to certify in this condition that the, 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 the computation has been performed correctly, in fact, you have been also saying the noise, imagine now that, that okay, the malicious party decided not to be malicious, okay? But it's still noisy, okay? But from my verification perspective, I don't know this, okay? I, I don't know that he's being honest, but, but so I'm not changing anything in my protocol. But if I still verify that, that means that the noise that has been happening outside of the lab of the client was not very strong because I was still able to guarantee that the computation was performed correctly. Okay. In spite of the noise, I still have my result. So in fact, these protocols are surprisingly interesting uh, for, as a benchmark. Okay, because in the end, if there is no malicious party, what we do is that we are benchmarking the noise. So people doing experiments are very happy with these kind of protocols uh, because it's like the ultimate benchmark. Okay, because if I pass the test, I can guarantee that their experiment is running well. And it's very rare that you have this. Okay, because when you do an experiment in the lab, you always have assumptions and things like this. Okay, and we are just providing a methodology <laughs> saying, okay, I don't want to know about your assumptions. I don't care. If you pass this test, then I, I can give you a cryptographic guarantee that you done, you've done the, the, the job properly. So that's very nice. Uh, and, and, and basically we are working with them to, to, to make sure that they don't break the protocol as well. Okay. Because still the protocol needs to be done in a certain way. Most of the time when you are doing or running an experiment in the lab, the client is here maybe and two meters away, there is the server and maybe there is like 50 kilometers of fiber in between them, but they are still in the same lab. So you don't want to make, you want to make sure that there is no communication that, that happens between the client and the server there in this situation. So they need to close these, these kind of loopholes. Uh, and we need to make sure that by processing the data and things like this, they don't introduce uh, problems in the, in the protocol. But, but, but if you do things properly, then it's a super nice benchmark.
And then from there, what we do, in fact, is try to help the people from the network assess the performance with respect to this benchmark. And we try to work in tandem with, uh, with the, the various hardware labs involved. And like, okay, what can you do? What can you improve? Maybe they have devices that we didn't think about that can be incorporated in the protocol and just improve the, the robustness of the protocol by itself. Okay? But then we need to change the proof uh, to make sure that everything works again. But we like to do this, so it's okay. Sounds fascinating. What, what, could you explain the verification methodology for me in terms of which level it's operating? Is it a series of steps which need to be followed? Is it a series of very specific tests and... and uh, variables that need to be captured and measured or? Yeah, it's very simple. It's very simple. Uh, just before in the discussion, I convinced you that it was not very complicated to hide the computation and the data, right? So by just changing, having this, this relative uh, reference frame that, that uh, I'm using uh, to communicate with the server, but keeping my, my own private reference frame uh, secret, and, and varying this reference frame qubit by qubit. Okay, so let's build on, on top of this. Okay, so now I'm starting in a situation where I'm able to delegate my computation to the server and he doesn't know what I'm doing. Okay. And now I want to verify that he is not doing something malicious <coughs> to my computation, which means I want to have a guarantee that he's following the instructions that I'm sending to him. The problem is that, let's say I'm doing machine learning, I'm sending these instructions to the server and maybe he's doing something else and still the data are going to look okay to me or they are maybe going to solve most of my problem, but the, but the server has nonetheless tampered with the actual real solution. And what I'm ending up with is maybe something that's not bad, but it's not the optimal that I paid for. Okay. And I don't want to be in this situation. The problem is like, if I'm actually doing this computation on a quantum computer, it may, that's precisely because I cannot do this computation on my own. So I cannot check. Okay. But then if you are able to perform computation in a blind way so that the server doesn't know what you are doing, maybe from times to times, just ask him to do a computation for which you know the result. Okay. See, because you delegate something that is blind, it doesn't know. Okay. But it's a test. And if he fails the test, you know that he's doing something nasty with your computation. And that's the idea. It's very simple. You just, and then you just need to work out the mass and it's working nicely. So basically you do that several times and you do this. And so what in the, in the end, what we do, if we want to be a little bit more technical is basically in these blind computations, you can delegate blindly full classes of computation. So there you have a class of computation that you can de delegate blindly. So every computation within this class will look the same to the server. And within this class, we know that there is always a large portion of, of, this, of these computations or a big enough portion of these computations that are Clifford computations. And Clifford computations have the uh, uh, nice property of being super easily classically simulatable. Okay. So you can simulate that on a classical computer. It takes like milliseconds. Okay. Uh, even though you are using like very large computations. Okay. So you can do this classical computation on your side as a client. You blind it 
you send it to the server and you ask for the result and then you compare what you got. And yeah, so, so that's the way it works. What really is important is, is to actually prove that this class of default computation is large enough to catch every possible deviant behavior from the server. Okay. But if you prove this, then basically you are done. And then you can devise like which kind of clipboard operation you want to take, what is the best one, what are the ones that you can actually easily implement because you have restrictions on the devices and things like this. And then, then you have like plenty of, of questions that come after this, but the, the principle is very simple. I, I, I tell you, it's fascinating field that you're working in, right? Because the networking at the moment is still experimental stage, of course, we're already thinking about ways to make these executions of uh, quantum uh, instructions over the network uh, private, which I think is, is, it's a fascinating field. And I'm sure what you're doing will become very central to the way quantum computers are used in the future. Um, I think I'm going to, I'm going to wrap it there because it's been such an amazing talk. And I think we should probably reconnect in a year or so to get an update for how, how some of these projects have been going and maybe how your thinking is evolving. But that was absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much for the discussion. Harold. It was a pleasure on my side. Good. Yes. Same for me. Okay. Bye for now. I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to the podcast. Quantum networking is such a broad domain especially considering the breadth of quantum physics and quantum computing all as an undercurrent easily to get sucked into. So much is still in the research realm, uh, which can make it really tough for a curious IT guy to know where to start. So hit subscribe or follow me on your podcast platform. And I'll do my best to bring you more prevalent topics in the world of quantum networking. Spread the word. It would really help us out.